What's up, everyone? Thank you for making us a part of your day. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Craig Evans. In case you do not know who he is, he's a distinguished professor of Christian origins at Houston Baptist University. He received his doctorate in biblical studies from Claremont University in California. Dr. Evans is a leading expert in the, the historical Jesus, archaeology, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Evans. How are you doing? Okay, good, good to be with you. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so just to start off, could you talk a little bit about how you got into biblical studies, uh, what interested you about like the historical Jesus, archaeology, things like that? Uh, yeah. Well, when I was uh, in high school and then later in university, uh, I was always interested in history. And uh, my father, late father, who was an attorney, hoped I'd go to law school, and I was open to that. So I went to a high-powered undergraduate school to gear up for law school. But I majored in history and minored in philosophy, and I just got the bug. I just know I, I enjoy history so much. And I had a, a sense that I should go into Christian ministry, too. And so instead of going to law school, when I graduated with my BA, I went to a seminary that was very strong in historical context, the biblical languages, Greek for the New Testament, Hebrew for the Old. And I happened to do very well in those fields. I didn't know I would. I was pleasantly surprised. And I realized, hey, I can do everything. I can do the history part and be, and gain ac <clears throat> expertise on how to exegete ancient texts. And that was exciting. So I finished my master's degree and I pursued the doctorate. I, I went to Claremont, as you mentioned, and pursued the PhD and what was a very strong faculty back in the day. Hans Dieter Betz was there and he was great in classics, Hellenistic world. Jim Robinson, of course, was well known for historical Jesus research. He was into the Nagamati Gnostic library. William Brownlee, well known for Dead Sea Scrolls. John Trevor, I mean, I was really lucky. And when I arrived, James Sanders from Union had just arrived, who was well known for early rabbinic exegesis and so forth. And I got a tremendous education as, an, as a graduate student, finished in 1980, and uh, or finished my coursework. I was still writing my dissertation. And I went to Canada, where I was for 35 years. And uh, although I'd written my dissertation on Isaiah, I became very interested in the New Testament, Jesus's understanding of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, how it was interpreted, preserved, and so forth. And so that I, I emerged in the 1980s as very much interested in historical Jesus. That whole question exploded on the scene. It was known as the Third Quest. The Jesus Seminar was founded. And so a lot of interesting things happened. And then in the early 90s, the remainder of the Dead Sea Scrolls were released. And there were some fascinating texts that shed light on Jesus, Paul, and early Christianity. Archaeology was exploding uh, also at the same time. And so lots of new things were coming to light, and it's still that way. It's a very active field. I find it refreshing and very invigorating. Hmm. That's interesting. So as you were going through your academic training through school and such, did you ever like have times where you kind of doubted the reliability of the Gospels or uh, your faith in general, anything along those lines? Well, you know, I knew uh, starting out I didn't know much. And uh, although I didn't have any particular reasons for uh, serious doubt, 
I just knew I didn't know much and I needed to change that. I needed to get into these ancient texts. I needed to get into history. One of the things that I had studied as a history major was how to evaluate documents. And I had no idea at the time how valuable that would be uh, later when it came to the Gospels, the Book of Acts, other types of writings, Josephus also. And so when I began to get into it deeper and deeper, yeah, I became aware of theories, uh, minimalists, skeptics, people said, oh, you can't trust any of this, you know, and, but other scholars who are not necessarily Christians, archaeologists, for example, who would say, yeah, the Gospels actually are rather accurate. And manuscript people said, yeah, the Gospels are extremely well preserved. We don't have any doubts about the text. And so I was hearing that too as a uh, under undergraduate, but also as a graduate student. So hearing that as I was learning for myself and going more deeply into it, I didn't have some crisis of faith. I didn't think, oh my goodness, the gospels can't be trust, trusted. There's a big problem with them or something because I was being exposed. As I look back on it now, I was being exposed to really good evidence, good scholarship, uh, good critical thinking back in the day. I didn't get knocked off the rails by some goofy idea. And I wasn't trapped in a uncritical fundamentalist mindset either that was afraid of scholarship or the idea that, you know, these two gospels might not tell the same story the same way. What do you do with discrepancies? I did. I wasn't, I wasn't nurtured and schooled in that kind of brittle fundamentalism. So I didn't have some kind of big crisis of faith when I grew up, so to speak, and discovered the big bad world of biblical studies. You know, I, I just grew up with, with a well-informed perspective by professors who knew what they were talking about, and they weren't anti-Christian or anti-evangelical. Uh, they were just well-informed, well-schooled. They'd gone to Union Seminary. They'd studied with the best people like the late Raymond Brown. Uh, and others, and I was just a beneficiary of that. And so when I went into the world of biblical scholarship, my faith was very much intact. I was open-minded. I wanted to learn. I knew I didn't know everything. I knew there was still much to learn. I still feel that way. But as I learned more and more about ancient texts, historiography, how texts were written, uh, history texts, but also pedagogy, how people were taught, how Jesus taught his own disciples, then this thing about discrepancies, you know, it all it all made sense. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples and or and told them, "You got to paraphrase and apply and explain my teaching in different settings, different languages." So that's what creates discrepancies. No problem, I get it. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been very rewarding uh, the, my whole career. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so today, obviously, we're going to talk a lot about like answering uh, common objections or things that we'll see in more internet circles uh, to the Gospels, typically from like an atheist or some sort of skeptic. So I think to start off, could you just uh, speak in a broad sense about why you believe the Gospels are reliable? Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, the more you get into it and the more sophisticated the kind of studying you do and the, you know, the scholarship becomes international. You don't just read a handful of simple little English books. You start reading deeper and deeper scholarly books in different languages, you know, not just English, but German and French and Italian and so forth. You become aware of the international scholarship 
you know, I, I first I joined the Society of Biblical Literature, which is largely North American. And then I was invited to join the uh, Society of New Testament Studies, which is international and there's specialists in New Testament. It's trilingual. And, you know, you get into the real serious stuff where people read Greek, it's as easy as can be. And, and uh, that's when you find out, okay, what's really going on? And yeah, there's different scholarly opinions. You get some people that tilt way over one way, but you have a mainstream that's pretty competent. And so your radical skepticism won't, is not acceptable. Skepticism isn't confused with criticism. They're not the same thing. And that's one of the things I ran into as, as a younger scholar starting out. Somebody would say, oh, I don't think that happened, or I think the gospel got it all wrong, or you can't trust this. And you ask them, well, why? Well, they don't have any reason. They just say that. They make a skeptical assertion as if that's scholarship or, you know, that's criticism. Well, it is not. You have to have reasons. And I... So let me get let me answer your question straight up. Why do I think the Gospels are reliable? Well, it's because they pass all the tests. One of the tests is verisimilitude. Does the Gospel account, I don't care, any historical account, the question is, does it reflect the realities of that period of time? And so a Gospel that, and there are Gospels like that, written in the second and third centuries, much later, they have a different agenda in mind. History is not one of them. And there's a gospel version called the Gospel of Barnabas. And we don't think it was written any earlier in the 14th or 15th century. Muslims love it because Jesus in the Gospel of Barnabas predicts the coming of Muhammad. Oh, they love that. That's great. That's the gospel you Christians ought to read. No. Whoever wrote the Gospel of Barnabas doesn't know that uh, Nazareth, for example, is not on the seashore, not on the lake shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he actually has the disciples rowing their boat across the Sea of Galilee and rowing all the way to Nazareth, and that's where they tie up their boat. Well, <laughs> if you've been to Israel, you know that's not possible. And so that's the kind of mistake. And I could list 10 more mistakes that the author of the Gospel of Barnabas makes. Well, believe me, if the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John had those kinds of mistakes in them, nobody would take them seriously. Well, they don't. In fact, they have it so accurate archaeologists make use of them. And I know these archaeologists. I've worked with one of them. His name is Shimon Gibson. Shimon's Jewish. He's not a Christian. He has no theological obligation whatsoever to try to defend the New Testament Gospels. No obligation whatever. He doesn't feel like, oh, well, it's canonical scripture. It's inspired. I have to, I have to defend Matthew or Mark. No, he doesn't feel that. He's Jewish. Yet, he uses Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all the time in his research, and that's involving archaeology in and around Jerusalem and elsewhere in Israel, because he finds the Gospels accurate and helpful. And one way of putting it is archaeologists discover the Gospels help archaeologists determine where to dig. And sometimes it's just a question of a few meters north or south, you know, in a particular spot. We've been digging at Mount Zion with Shimon in recent years, but it also helps archaeologists figure out what they've dug up when they find things. And so it, what happens is it's a relationship between um, the archaeology as artifacts, things you dig up, and the written text. And if the two shed light on each other, that's a good sign.
And so uh, archaeologists, whether they're Christian or Jewish, whether they believe in God or not, they find that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four New Testament Gospels, and the book of Acts in the New Testament, so five writings in the New Testament, the historical writings in the New Testament are reliable and useful guides. And to do archaeology, say, at Caesarea Maritima on the seashore, without referring to the book of Acts, to do any kind of excavations in Jerusalem without reference to the Gospels, or to do excavations in Galilee without reference to the Gospels would be considered stupid and irresponsible. And so that's a big vote in favor. Now, the other thing, of course, the Gospels are multiply attested, a lot of the stories. Any historian will tell you if you have two or more sources of the same story, that's very encouraging. So that's another reason. There's the question of coherence. Uh, does it actually hang together, these stories? Do you get a consistent development that makes sense? Again, the answer is yes. Another criterion looks at result. Jesus died on a Roman cross, crucified as somebody claiming to be a king. Does that fit with what the Gospels say he taught? Sure enough, the Gospels say he proclaimed the kingdom of God talked about his own authority is greater than, than the authority of the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem. So when you see those kinds of things, the pieces all start fitting together. And then when you find archaeological discoveries that fit, you know, there are stone water pots, according to the custom of the Jews, the Gospel of John says in chapter 2 in Cana. Well, at Cana of Galilee, they have found broken stone water pots, according to the custom of the Jews. Well, that's right. And on it goes, uh, things like that. And so when you it accumulates, you keep finding those things, and then the Gospels don't make any mistakes. You don't have the Gospels talking about a non-existent village or a non-existent mountain or a non-existent stream or river, a non-existent Roman governor, a non-existent high priest. Everything the Gospels talk about, or many, many things have been confirmed. And by the way, as the years go by and the digging continues, more and more things are confirmed. So when you don't have any flat outright disproof, when you have verisimilitude, it reflects the realities of the time. When the archaeologists tap into it all the time with confidence and it pays off, you know, to review that, you end up saying, yeah, the Gospels are reliable. I mean, there's still questions, theological questions. You know, you can prove uh, with, within, I think any historian would say that's reasonable proof that Jesus actually died on a Roman cross. But you can't prove that his death on the cross forgave sins. That's a theological statement. So not everything can be proved, but, but the kind of things that historians can prove when they're looking at ancient writings, those kinds of things uh, are proved regularly with the Gospels. And that's why they're not even disputed. They're just used as sources. It's hmm. good. So now I'm going to ask you some more uh, objections that we hear. Maybe some of these are from scholarship. A lot of these are from what I'll see online from the atheists that I know and interact with uh, and other people do. So it's probably some of the more uh, trivial things, perhaps. I don't, I'm not sure what your take on them is. But the first thing I want to bring up is the idea that we can't trust the Gospels because they're written anonymously. I'll see this a lot of the times in skeptical circles posted as, why should we trust a book if the people who wrote it didn't even like have the guts to put their name on it or they just didn't put their name on it. We shouldn't trust an anonymous story, something along those lines. So how do you look at that objection? Well, 
you know, that kind of objection is naive. Uh, there are all kinds of writings from antiquity that circulated anonymously. The other, uh, it, it, more specifically, though, with regard to the uh, New Testament Gospels, first of all, they aren't anonymous. When they originally circulated, people knew who wrote them. And uh, if you know anything about the book culture in antiquity, typically there was some kind of accompanying letter or something written on the back. Most of these books, when they were originally um, circulated, if I could take this piece of paper, they circulated as uh, scrolls. They were rolled up, written only on the inside. On the outside, there might be a statement uh, explaining who wrote it, under what circumstances, and why. But when the copies are made, these things disappear. And all that re remains for the Gospels is, well, this one's according to Matthew, this one's according to Mark, this one's according to Luke, and so forth. And so they're anonymous only in the sense that the author does not embed his own name in the text itself. And if you look at your ancient historians, most of them don't do that. It's an exception where somebody says, I, Herodotus, write this history. They usually don't. And so what happens is, is the scholars, the disciples, the community, the family uh, that sponsored, because there were no modern publishers, as you know, of course, back then, you didn't take your manuscript to a printer and then he made a thousand copies of it. And there's a title page with your name on it. That's modern. That's what we do now. But in antiquity, nobody did that. And so these gospels circulated. And so scholars debate to this day, did they ever circulate anonymously? Some think, no, they didn't. They circulated. Everybody knew who, who wrote them. So the idea that they circulated anonymously, that's a scholarly assertion that's modern. It's probably not true. Uh, the truth of the matter is when they first circulated, everybody knew who wrote them. As time went on, they were less sure, and all that remained was this little, the gospel according to Matthew or something like that written on the top. There was nothing else. And so, and of course, if scholars choose to ignore second century evidence that talks about who wrote them, if they choose to ignore it, they're just ignoring ancient evidence and then declaring gratuitously that there is no evidence. And I don't think that's very reasonable or fair. The thing is, the Gospels are early. Only the most radical suggest that they're real late. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the three synoptics are written in the first century. Uh, demographics and statistics studies suggest that many, many, a significant percentage of eyewitnesses are still living when Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written and circulate. So the idea of creating a fictional Jesus, either somebody who didn't exist at all, and that mythicism is downright silly, or it's grossly distorted. Jesus was nothing more than some village wandering teacher. That was it. And somehow got caught up in a riot and died. And all of this has been turned into some kind of messianic claimant who performs miracles. But none of that is true. That's not what he did. The idea that you could have a totally fictionalized, unhistorical presentation of Jesus and nobody knew that. Nobody objected to it. And this could be done uh, in three different Gospels within 30 to 40 years of his death. That's really quite absurd. And real historians, classicists who look at ancient Greek and Latin history, they, they don't have that kind of skepticism. They would see that as completely unwarranted. Okay. Uh, another 
uh, objection that we have here that I'll bring up is the idea that the Gospels aren't you could, they'd say they're primary sources or eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, that they're really more secondhand accounts. For example, in the Gospels, it talks about, it writes about certain people who have witnessed the risen Jesus, but the Gospel writers themselves don't claim to have written the risen Jesus. And I think the same thing could be translated to uh, the Pauline epistles, where they may say Paul had some sort of vision, but if you look at it in 1 Corinthians 15, it's Paul reciting a creed he's not claiming to have actually witnessed the bodily resurrection of jesus that's a couple of things i just threw on you there so how do you look at those kind of claims well again uh an objection like that is very selective and what's being thrown out is any evidence that contradicts it and then you just grab on to a handful of other passages that you might infer you might interpret that way but that's not what a historian does. A historian takes all of the evidence and takes it into account. And so one of the things that immediately jumps out with the accounts is how modest they are. You would expect fictional writers, and one of the sharpest critics of Christianity, late second century Celsus, and Origen, the church father in the third century, writes against him, contra Celsum. But Celsus, we think, writing around 170 or so A.D., oh, he thinks the gospel accounts, how can you believe the uh, resurrection narratives? It's just silly uh, hysterical women who are witnesses. Uh, You've you got to do better than that. There should be hostile witnesses. There should be, you know, Roman soldiers, the Roman governor who condemned Jesus. They ought to all be there. By the way, Later, Christian fiction did that. The Gospel of Peter answers that call and has exactly those kind of people witness the resurrection. So I find it's interesting that the Gospel writers, surely if they're just liars and passing on any rumor they hear and are happy to make things up, then why do they only have frightened women appear at the tomb? Now, the Gospel of John has Peter arrive at the tomb. And there is the early tradition that Peter has seen the Lord, and Paul confirms that. So let's look at Paul. It is correct. Paul is citing a very early tradition in 1 Corinthians 15. He received it, as he honestly says, to the Corinthians to whom he writes his letter. And so he passes on to them what he himself received. And most uh, scholars of Paul's letters in life think that he was converted one, maybe two years after Easter. And this is the tradition that existed then. Well, that's a pretty early tradition to be based on nothing but nothing. That Jesus, you know, was raised up and then appeared to Peter. He appeared to this group, that group, this group, to James, his brother. As Bart Ehrman himself said, Uh, In his very good book, Did Jesus Exist? He'd say, you know, if Jesus didn't exist, you'd think his brother would have known that. And I think that's that's very witty and it's right on the money. Well, if Jesus was not raised up, you'd think his brother James would know that because it would fall to James and his family to see to Jesus's proper burial. And the law allowed that after being buried in shame in your non-family tomb for one year, Your skeletal remains can be gathered up and relocated to a place of honor, like your family tomb or wherever. 
And the idea that the Jewish people would lose track of where a loved one was buried or have no idea is absolute silliness and condescension. It's, it's really speaking down to people in antiquity as though they're stupid and, and wouldn't know anything. Burial was extremely important to the Jewish people. There's no chance that they'd lose track of what happened to Jesus's body and wouldn't know where he was buried or something like that. So the, the tradition is so early, what Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 15, the idea that it just got made up is unlikely, very unlikely. And here's the thing, Paul knows James. He met Peter and didn't always agree with him either, by the way. And he met John, the apostle John. So he speaks of the pillars of the church. And you would think, that if Jesus really wasn't resurrected, that it was all some grotesque mistake that, well, actually he's buried over there. And, you know, that's where his bones are. Paul would have found that out. Don't forget, Paul was an enemy of the church. He was looking for any kind of critical counter evidence that he could find. And he describes his own uh, Damascus Road experience. He alludes to it many times in his letters, where God in his mercy was willing to reveal his son to me. Paul didn't feel worthy. He was persecuting the church. He was a blasphemer. He was saying Jesus is not the Messiah. He's a breaker of the law, uh, persecuting uh, members of the church and so on. And then he encounters the risen Jesus and everything changes. Then he meets members of Jesus's family and his original apostles. So Paul gives us a very tight, close link connection to the Jesus movement. Eyewitness, he knew the eyewitnesses. And uh, so if there was nobody had any idea what happened to Jesus or nobody knows uh, where he was buried, you, Paul would talk differently. Paul speaks as, you know, it doesn't even have to be debated. Of course, he was put to death. He was buried. Etafe, he says, etafe, he was buried in 1 Corinthians 15. The idea of, as some have said, oh, maybe he wasn't buried, just hanging on the cross, eaten by dogs. Therefore, there is no tomb. There is no body. And so on. That is patent nonsense. Not a chance that that was the case. So for me, the tradition is so early. Paul is such an important testimony, and the Gospels themselves are so restrained by the truth. It's the women who went to the tomb first, like it or not, that's what happened. And so to me, that, that scores very high in terms of credibility. All right, awesome. Uh, another objection here that we'll throw in is one that we can't trust the gospels because they make supernatural claims. So I think you could look at this almost in two senses. Uh, the first being that since the gospels um, put in, since the gospels have supernatural claims, we can't trust anything the gospels say if they're going to make up sort of the supernatural. Um, and number two, even if the gospels are true and you could trust them to some sense, like for like archeological purposes, we still can't believe, for example, the resurrection of Jesus because that's a supernatural claim. And from we don't have any experience of any supernatural events happening. So when you look at this idea, how do you approach it? Well, OK, that's that's a, at that point, history is starting to move into philosophy. Uh, 
and physics and assumptions about things. And of course, you know, it's a circular, it's circular reasoning. So what the skeptic is saying is, look, I don't believe in God. Therefore, God-like things can't happen. Somebody says, well, wait a minute, maybe you should reassess your atheism or your skepticism. Here are these accounts that describe somebody doing God-like things. Well, no, I'm not open to that. I've already said there is no God, and therefore no God-like things, no supernatural things can happen. So your mind is snapped shut. It won't even consider any evidence. Um, what I The way you break out of that is say, okay, I'll be open-minded, and I'll consider it. Well, you don't just have one gospel story. You have four accounts that are first century. Three of them are very early. You don't just have the gospel accounts. You have Paul himself, who talks about works of power done in his own ministry in the name of Jesus. So you get, okay, here's Paul again, early stuff, firsthand, effective stuff. He talks about it. You have it narrated in the book of Acts, too. So the skeptic is going to have to say, I'm going to reject all four gospels. I'm going to reject the book of Acts. And I'm going to reject Paul also, who wrote several letters firsthand. Not people talking about Paul, not people saying, I remember Paul saying, it's Paul himself. So if you want to do that, in other words, you, you're operating on, by the philosophy of, I reject all evidence that contradicts my preferred view. Then you're stuck in your little box. That's You put yourself in a box that says, I don't, I, since I'm so skeptical, I don't think God exists. I don't think God does anything, therefore. I can't even begin to look at evidence that suggests maybe I'm wrong. Maybe God does exist. Now, of course, we can get very philosophical. We can get into science, astronomy, and everything else. And I read just for fun when I'm not doing my biblical stuff, Greek and Hebrew and all that. I like to read science, two areas. Cosmogony, you know, the existence of the cosmos and it's beginning, cosmology and cosmogony. And I love it. I love reading books about the Big Bang, astronomy, the age of the earth, fine-tuning what, what has to be so that anything, so that we can exist and even talk to each other. And then the second thing, I love reading about neurology, the, the way the mind works, consciousness, brain, thinking, all of that. And for me, all of this pushes toward not accident, not chaos, not just some weird fluke that brought a universe into existence that's viable and can function, that resulted miraculously in having a planet just right where intelligent life can live and learn and develop us. I, you know, those are just too many, too many lucky breaks. There are literally millions of lucky breaks, getting it just right, winning the lottery again and again and again, thousands of times in the right sequence so that we end up here. I think the much better explanation, again, is God. So if God is the best explanation for the cosmos, God is the best explanation for intelligent life going from non-life. Don't forget, folks, even if you allow the Big Bang and say, okay, I accept that, that's 100% absolute sterility. So how do you go from a totally sterile situation to life and intelligent life at that, that can think, that is conscious? So it's not rocks and dirt, they, they don't do that. So I find the reality of the cosmos, the beginning of the universe, 
human beings, the fact that we think that we have moral, a moral code that we sense right and wrong, it's universal among humans. All of this points to the reality of God as creator and the uh, image of God that's stamped upon us. We're made in his image, and that's why humans are the way they are and are distinct from the animal kingdom. So that, in my mind, says the God possibility is a real one. Is there evidence anywhere else that God exists? Do we have God-like things happening anywhere else? And we do. And that's what the Jesus story is all about, God acting in him in a very special and unique way and, and invites critical study, investigation. It's not to be hidden. And let, look at the Gospels and compare them to what we know of history, geography, topography, verisimilitude questions and all of that. The Gospels talk about real people, real things, real places, real events, and a whole lot of it can be critically examined and verified. Hmm. It's really interesting. It's really good about how the Gospels do relate to the real world. Uh, I want to go here in a little bit different direction, but still kind of a similar thing regarding the New Testament. I want to ask you a little bit about the Pauline epistles, because, I mean, there are a few of the letters, such as First and Second Corinthians, and a few others that are typically accepted by all scholars as authentic letters of Paul. But then you have letters such as First and Second Timothy and a few others that, I mean, if you read from some people, you'd say there's no way that they're written by Paul. Uh, or obviously, it's just going to depend on the scholar. But how do you look at these epistles, which there's scholarly debate on who wrote them, and the question of how can we trust the New Testament if we don't know if Paul wrote these letters? Okay. Well, here's the problem. It would be like saying, to create an analogy, not all historical documents from the past are reliable. Therefore, how can we trust any history? Well, who would argue that way? You find one problem or two problems, what? You throw the whole thing out. So the entire uh, line of argument is questionable. It's also anachronistic. It's assuming that the canon of the New Testament somehow gets projected back into the first century. Why? And so what is the New Testament? So you have to ask yourself that. By the way, this would apply also to um, uh, what we call the Old Testament. Um, it's a library. It's a collection of writings. We need to understand their purpose, the genre. Uh, what we have in the Old Testament is a collection of laws, historical narratives, they're not necessarily prescriptive. They're not necessarily telling you how to live. They're inviting you to read and learn from it. There's wisdom literature. There's psalms, uh, worship literature. There are books of prophecy, and most of that prophecy is, is political uh, criticism directed against the rulers, not looking forward into the future and trying to predict things. And so it's a, it's a great library. Is it valuable? Well, people believe it really is valuable. It tells us a lot about the past, profound, deep human insight into the human uh, predicament, uh, insight into God. There's the mystical, the spiritual, the devotional, all those things. Then you come to the New Testament, and it's very much centered on this person from Nazareth, Jesus, 
We have these accounts about what he did, said, what happened, the impact it had on other people. We have these letters, not all written by Paul, some written by others, uh, and so forth. So we end up with this collection, and, and over a period of three, four centuries and longer, church leaders discussed which one of these should we regard. And by the way, they didn't start off by saying which one of these are canonical and which ones of these are inspired. It started out, which of these are edifying and should be read when Christians get together? A lot of people don't know that. That's where canon comes from. And so the, the leaders were saying, we've got some gospels. And by the way, more gospels are being written in the second and third centuries. We've got various books of Acts, various apocalypses, books of Revelation, a whole bunch of different letters. People, you know, more Pauline letters are popping up. And so which writings should we encourage churches to read when people get together? They weren't trying to tell Christians you can't read other things. If you want to read Plato, go ahead. But what are you going to read when you get together as believers? Stuff that will edify and nurture. Well, you want to read stuff Jesus taught. Okay, Gospels, which ones? How about the early ones? Well, which letters do we want to read? Well, the ones written by the apostles. Okay. And so these things got debated. Now, just for the sake of argument, let us suppose the third of the 13 letters that have Paul's names, maybe Paul only wrote 10 of them, or maybe he only wrote seven of them. Does that destroy the Christian faith? No. Why? When Peter began to preach following the discovery of the empty tomb, the appearance of the risen Jesus, he proclaimed the gospel. This Jesus whom you had crucified, God has raised up. He is the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. The people said, what do we do? And Peter didn't say, well, you have to accept the 27 books of the New Testament. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't say you have to accept only the four Gospels. Of course not. And so you repent and you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's all you have to do. The church found in the passage of time that it was useful and worthwhile to have a limited, and see, that's what they did. They limited an ever-growing and expanding number of writings. So if you want to read First Clement, if you want to read the epistles of Ignatius, if you want to read the shepherd of Hermas, that's okay. But when we're together in church, we want to narrow it down to a certain few gospels and a certain few letters that are really edifying and will help the church grow. That's what the canon is, and that makes a lot of sense. So if it turns out Paul didn't write all 13 letters, if it turns out Peter only wrote one of the letters, or maybe none, if we honestly don't know who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or Hebrews, it doesn't really matter. As scholars, we want to know because we want to have as much knowledge as possible. We want to be as precise as we can. But in a sense, the canon of the New Testament, as important as it is, doesn't uh, either confirm or falsify the truth of the gospel. The canon is a tool that helps the church and edifies the members of the church in their growth as Christians. But it, the canon of the New Testament isn't, in a sense, it isn't the gospel. It isn't God. It isn't the incarnate Christ. 
who achieved what he achieved. I think we just need to keep it in perspective. Hmm. That's interesting. So would you, do you believe um, if you do have an opinion on this topic that Paul would be the author of, let's just say, for example, second Timothy. Um, Oh, here's how I put it. Of course, I, this comes up all the time with my students. I have no doubts about the first 10 letters. Okay. And so I'm including 2 Thessalonians and uh, Colossians and Ephesians. Those are the other three that sometimes people express doubts about. I think the arguments against Pauline authorship of those letters, you know, is very weak. The other seven, of course, nobody disputes. And those are the ones I've been talking about. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. They're the ones that contain the most important biographical information, by the way about Jesus's knowledge, or I'm sorry, Paul's knowledge of Jesus's family and his original disciples. The rest is just icing on the cake. Now, the only three, I look at them and I say, I see why skeptics are skeptical. Because first and second, Timothy and Titus uh, read a little bit differently. They just don't have the same feel and the same sound that uh, you, you hear in the other 10 letters that bear Paul's name. However, I've, I've read, I'm not a Pauline scholar, and I have no dog in the fight in that sense. I've never written a book, you know, that's about Paul or did he really write the pastorals. I don't see myself ever doing that. I lean cautiously in favor of Pauline authorship because, frankly, I'm not impressed by the arguments against Pauline authorship. The pseudo letters, the letters that Paul clearly did not write, like Third Corinthians or the letter to the Laodiceans, for example, those are so obviously different from Paul. Paul didn't write Hebrews either, by the way. So, you know, there were some who thought that. And so when you look at the broader picture, the pastorals aren't that much different from Paul's other writings. So I tilt in favor, but if some evidence come out eventually that says, no, Paul did, Paul was dead 30 years, before, you know, and then they were written. Okay, fine. Awesome. Uh, another question here uh, regarding the gospel of John specifically. And I think from what I've looked at through most scholarship, they would, most scholars believe that the gospel of John was written later than, uh, the synoptic Gospels. And so there will be some skeptics that will say that kind of Christianity was theologically building up. Like, the, for example, the deity of Christ wasn't really important in their early, um, when the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. But in the Gospel of John, we see the deity of Christ and things like that a lot, emphasized a lot more in the Gospel of John. So how would you respond to the idea that we see this kind of like, theological buildup in the early church, kind of like maybe like adding dogma to their beliefs? Well, there is some truth to that. Uh, yeah, I think there is a little bit of truth to that. There's a very high Christology in Paul's letters, and Paul's letters are older, most of them anyway, than the oldest gospel. So you have to be careful of that kind of an argument. Um, it's pointed out, for example, in Philippians, uh, we date, that usually around uh, 62 or 3, something like that. Some date the prison letters a little earlier, but whatever. They're either late 50s or early 60s. 
and Paul is quoting pre-Pauline tradition and the Christ hymns, who existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as something that had to be seized. This is reflecting the Roman Empire and the thinking of the Caesars who want to seize identity with God and at death be deified, enrolled in the pantheon, divinization. And so that's pretty exalted Christology. And by the way, those are Yahweh texts that Paul uses, not just in uh, Philippians, but elsewhere in his other writings, Romans and 1 Corinthians, texts right out of the Old Testament, where in the Greek it says, kurios, Lord, but the, the underlying Hebrew is Yahweh, the name of God. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that perfectly well. He was a rabbi. He was trained at the feet of uh, Gamaliel. He knows that stuff, and he knows exactly what he's saying when he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. When you go to Isaiah, where that comes from, and it's, a, it's before Yahweh, people bow. So this is a very high Christology, and Paul is citing it, and it, it's pre-Paul, so it's extremely early as before the Gospels are written. So what you have to do is say, okay, what's the purpose for each Gospel? And you have some pretty significant Christology uh, in all three of the synoptics, and so it isn't just John that so wears it on the sleeve. So you have to ask, well, what's John doing? Why is John being so obvious about it. And that's something I've been exploring with great interest. I think it's partly because John is reacting to uh, Hellenistic Judaism that talks about the idea of God's word or his spirit or his wisdom incarnate among us. And John is saying that's exactly how you should describe Jesus. He is, in fact, the word of God. He's God himself as the good shepherd, the light of the world, the bread of life made flesh and dwelling among us in that leather tent of Exodus long ago. Well, that's a type that foreshadows the tent made of human skin that God's word now dwells in. And so John's gospel has his own agenda. And at the same time, I think he's speaking to the pagan world that says, why are you calling him the Messiah, the Son of God? This is our understanding of God's. And John is saying, yeah, I know that. And Jesus does stuff that just blows away your gods. So I think he's fighting a two-front battle, skepticism in the synagogue, and, of course, disbelief in the, in the Greco-Roman world. And so to counter that and make headway, he presents Jesus in very exalted terms. So he has his own reason. But John is not the inventor of high Christology. It's already there. And it's very early. Hmm. All right. I have one more question here, and then we'll transition to a Q&A. So if you're listening with us live, we'll have a few minutes, hopefully, to answer maybe one or two questions. You can put those in the comments if you wish. But for now, my last question for you uh, is, so some skeptics will allege that if, let's say, an event such as the resurrection of Jesus actually occurred, um, which obviously we both believe it did occur, we'd see a lot more writing about it from extra biblical texts, from texts outside the Bible, from 
Jews or Romans or people like that. Um, Cause there are a few, but people would say that for example, in first Corinthians 15, it talks about uh, more than 500 people seeing the resurrection of Christ. So if that is true, why don't we see more writings about Jesus and his resurrection from other sources? Well, that question presupposes all kinds of things. First of all, it presupposes that there weren't any other writings. How do we know that? There are all kinds of writings in antiquity that are lost and gone. We have only a fraction today of what existed in writing. The other thing it presupposes, that that's the natural reaction, is to write it down. That's a very modern thing. We tweet about it, I suppose, or do an Instagram. But in antiquity, they talked about it. So they did verbal tweeting with their mouth. They talked. And not too many people wrote things down. So of all the talking and communicating that went on, only a small percentage of it gets written down, and only a small percentage of it gets preserved. But here's something else. Stop and think about it. We have 13 letters that have Paul's names. In my mind, 10 of them are certainly Paul's, probably all 13. He was outside. He wasn't a believer. He didn't follow Jesus. He wasn't one of the disciples. Then he meets Jesus, and he starts writing like crazy. He does exactly what your skeptic was asking about. If the resurrection occurred, why aren't more people writing about it? Well, hello, there's one guy did not believe in Jesus, meets the risen Jesus, and writes 13 letters that we know of. He wrote twice as many to Corinth, by the way. What we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians is really 2nd and 4th. So who knows how many other writings Paul wrote. We have 13 or 10 of them for sure, in my view. So in other words, the question is kind of funny. So it's a good question. It's nice to ask. There's another problem with a question like that. It comes up in different forms. Like sometimes people say, well, my goodness, if Jesus healed people, if he did all these kinds of things, if he was resurrected as well, why aren't more people talking about him in the first century? Well, it's taking Jesus, who's well-known by the third and fourth centuries, and asking a world that doesn't have the Internet or television why everybody doesn't know that in the 30s and 40s. Well, there's no CNN, right? There's no television. And so it's all word of mouth, people running around talking about things. But there's also a lot of camouflage. People believed lots of things about gods and special people and so on. So a lot of pagans are going to hear something about this Jewish man from Galilee or from Israel who is special. They're going to say, oh, really? I heard about somebody else. I heard about somebody else who did something like that. So in a sense, uh, the, the, the wheat and the chaff need to get sorted out. And so there's a little bit of camouflage, and this question also presupposes that Jesus's super reputation that he's acquired by the third and fourth centuries would have been known immediately uh, in in the first century. But I do appreciate that question because Paul is a great example himself. You know, he doesn't believe in Jesus. He meets him, and what does he do? He begins preaching him and writing lots of letters. But most people who meet the risen Jesus, most people who hear the gospel story and say, I believe it and embrace it, they don't write anything down at all. 
Yeah, that's funny. I never, I mean, obviously the Paul thing, I just never really, I mean, obviously I knew it, but I didn't really think about it when I was asking the question. Um, I'll throw up one question here from the audience before we start to wrap things up here from Salem. He says, besides uh, your own reading, Dr. Evans, what are some books on the Gospels that you suggest reading? Oh, okay. Well, there are scads and scads of books on the Gospels. If, if There are commentaries that are quite good. Uh, there are books that are written on the whole of the Gospels. Uh, some books have an apologetic interest in mind. They're arguing for the Gospels being historical and reliable and that sort of thing. Other Gospels aren't interested, or other books are not interested in that question. They're just interested in what's the theology of the Gospel writers. If you're interested in a book that I think you could put under the category of apologetic in light of what we've been talking about, Richard Bauckham's book, and he's done a new edition just a few years ago, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And uh, I think that's it's an excellent book. And he shows how this contradicts, I think, some of the uncritically held ideas out there that, oh, there's no eyewitness tradition. This These Gospels are written years and years later by people who didn't see anything or hear anything firsthand. They're just writing it down. And Bauckham, I think, shows that that's most unlikely. There's a lot of eyewitness tradition in the Gospels, and he gives good reasons for it. So Richard Bauckham, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M. I know him personally. He's an excellent scholar. Uh, he was at St. Andrews, Scotland, a university there for many years. He retired some years ago, about a decade ago, and he lives in Cambridge. He's very respected. Um, Oh, I don't know. I, Tom Wright, any of his stuff on the historical Jesus is really well-informed and quite good. To Scott McKnight is another great uh, writer. Craig Keener for excellent background information. The Jesus, the Gospels, in the, in the Greco-Roman world. That's another uh, good source. Ben Witherington is somebody else also. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so we'll start to wrap things up here. If people want to follow you, Dr. Evans, and your work, how should they do that? Well, I do have a web page, uh, uh, com, And uh, there's no dots around my middle initials. So it's just www, you know, whatever that is, craigaevans.com. And uh, my speaking schedule, which, of course, is all messed up this year. But uh, recent books, I have a book uh, that I co-authored with John Collins and Lee McDonald on how the canon came about. I have a couple of chapters in it. Um, I, I have some books on um, how the Gospels got written. Actually, one that's coming out this fall, assuming it's not delayed because of uh, all the virus slowdown is called Jesus and the Manuscripts. And it's a dozen chapters that talk about Jesus and the ancient manuscripts, whether they're Christian or not, Jewish, Islamic, you know, you name it, whatever the sources are, the oldest and the best manuscripts. And uh, it's very technical. Some of it gets, you know, very technical. So, but I would recommend that if you want to know what I've been doing. I'm right now doing some work on the second century and how Christians found it very important to point out that the miracles of Jesus are very different from the miracles performed uh, by Asclepius, 
uh, believed to take place by Asclepius in his various healing temples. There are maybe as many as 400 of them. A lot of people don't know this, including Christians, that in the second and third centuries, the real competition that Christianity faced were these 400 uh, healing resorts, healing sanitariums and temples, where the god Asclepius, it was believed, would appear to you in a dream and show you how to be healed. And, uh, and so that's an interesting field of study that I don't think people have known that well. And so I'm showing how the early church would point to Jesus and say, he's the one that will really heal you and, and won't charge you for it either, by the way. So that's an interesting area of study that I'm working on right now. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Uh, thank you for your time. Before we wrap things up, I just want to say, everyone, thanks for listening. This is Here in Apologetics. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe to us, whether you're listening to us on YouTube or our podcast, wherever you're listening to us. Thank you for making us a part of your day. You can follow us on Twitter at A Apologetics or search it Here in Apologetics on Facebook or Instagram or any of that good stuff. If you like it here in Apologetics, I just want to say thank you to our supporters who make this possible. We're about 38% fully to what other way from being fully funded right now. And if you want to help us reach full funding, you can support us at patreon.com slash adhere and apologetics. But that's it for today. I thank you so much for your time, Dr. Evans. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. All right, everyone. God bless. <laughs>